Hello and welcome to episode number six of the Crazy Money Podcast. This is Paul Ollinger. Who else would it be? You know what? If you had ears in the 1990s, then you know that the voice you just heard belongs to this week's guest, i.e. Ed Roland, lead singer of the band Collective Soul. Now, I often joke that the reason I do comedy is because I can't play guitar. <laughs> I'm so witty. Well, Ed Roland can play guitar and he can sing and he can play the clarinet, as you'll hear. And he's earned a very good living from those skills. Not that it was easy to get started for the first decade of his career. He was learning how to write songs and how to record them without blowing up the studio. You'll hear about that. But once he broke through, boy, did he break through. Did he and the band break through. They've sold over 10 million records, despite what I say at the beginning of the interview. And they're still touring today. They've got a very active touring schedule. You can find them uh, touring all over the country. You can go to their website, collectivesoul.com. Soul is S-O-U-L. Anyway, Ed made some really brilliant long-term financial decisions as a young man that benefit him today and benefit me and you because I can play the songs that you just heard and others later in the interview because Ed owns those songs. He also made some, uh, there are also some pretty painful mistakes he encountered early in his career. Some would say crimes. So we'll get into that a little bit. I just wanted to interview Ed because I think it's really interesting to find out how making a living as a musician feels different in your 50s as a parent and a family guy than it did when you were in your late 20s as a single guy, you know, and what are the opportunities, the pains uh, that are different at this phase of life? I think those are interesting. We recorded this interview in Ed's home studio in his basement. In full disclosure, I must reveal that Ed and I are friends IRL in real life. We met through our sons who were schoolmates and remain very good pals. They're both nine and call each other dude a lot, which cracks me up. Hey, I will be appearing at the DC Comedy Festival on April 11th. I'll be at the North Carolina Comedy Festival on April 25th and 26th. And at the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival here in Atlanta, Georgia, home of Collective Soul and of the Ollinger family on May 10th and 11th. Google them festivals and get yourself some tickets. And now enjoy this friendly conversation with my pal Ed Roland. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. With me today on the podcast is singer-songwriter, lead vocalist of the triple platinum recording artist collective soul, Ed Roland. Would, did I describe that correctly? If I think we sold more than three million, but that's is that triple platinum? I don't know. That's what I read. On the, was, tell, that was one album. One album. <laughs> well, we, we, we're about to release our tenth and eleventh next year. I don't want to undersell you. I don't I want to know. oversell I don't you. Want to, I don't want to be boastful either. Well, so. give me the what's what are you most proud of in your musical career? That I'm able to write songs and make a living and support my family. That's it. It truly comes down to that, and people appreciate the songs and come to shows. I mean, because for so long. The only people that show up to our shows were whoever we were dating. <laughs> and that was because we got free beer. That's how we got paid, right, you know? Right, right. So they were like, oh, yeah, I can go get drunk. I'll, I'll date you for a night, Ed. So let's go back to that. Where'd you grow up? How'd you find your way to music? Grew up in Atlanta. Originally, my dad was operatic trained. He was supposed to go to Italy to sing opera. Is that right? My dad had one of the most beautiful Pavarotti voices. Like, And uh, before they left, 
for Italy, him and God had a conversation. He decided to be a minister. Mm -hmm. So from there, he went to seminary in Texas. He went to uh, Shorter College, is where he started in Rome, and then seminary out in Texas. And this that's kind of where I spent my childhood in Rome and Texas. And then he his first gig, I call it gig, his first well, his first gig, gig was in Stockbridge, Georgia. <laughs> he's a performer Georgia. on some level. He's up on a stage, I, I right? always say that. Like, people ask. I was like, I always wanted to be my dad. He was on stage. I just wanted a bigger sound system and more lights. <laughs> right, So, right. you know, watching someone on a stage, that's what I grew up watching. And, and mm-hmm. my mom played piano in the church. So it was just a very church. And people always ask, was it a confusing childhood? And I go, no, it was my childhood. It was a house full of love, music, and sports. I mean, it was cool. And, you know... You grow up and you think, I mm-hmm. want to be Michael Jackson. And when Michael Jackson got old, he wished he had my childhood. Right. You know what I'm saying? I, so I think the like, whole time he did. Yeah. But my point is, I, I loved my childhood. How did you get started with the music? Mom played the piano constantly. Dad sang. So uh, dad was first a minister of music. So mom played the piano. So I just grew up in music. And my dad, he we'd go see Billy Graham Crusades and we sneak, dad would sneak backstage to meet George Beverly Shea, which I don't know many people know, but he was I don't a musical. Know who's that? He was a musical director of Billy Graham Crusades. Oh wow! So that was kind of my first introduction to music, and then Dad took me to see Johnny Cash. What year was that? Sixty nine. Where was that? Uh, Dallas, Texas. Then he took me to see Liberace, <laughs> <laughs> and then Elton John, literally in that order. Wow! And then the Kinks. I'm like, oh wow! What? Where'd you see the Kinks? At Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. Get out of here! What year was that? I don't early seventies. I mean, it was just, before their revival with like Superman and yeah, and all that kind it of stuff. was just crazy. My dad was just, you know, he loved music. He he wasn't one of those crazy preachers that burned records. Now there was a <laughs> point where he he did monitor what I listened to, and and he should. He was being a parent, you know. What didn't make the cut? The one thing that got him upset is when Elton John came out saying he was bisexual, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my hero. That's that's when I started getting the music was Elton John's Greatest Hits. The first right. record I ever bought. Well, I, I bought Elvis when we lived in Texas. So the first record I ever bought was an Elvis record. And then Elton John was second. And I, I just became just over the top about Elton. But I had an Elvis book that I learned how to play guitar with. But Elton, just the songwriting got me. That's where I wanted to be a songwriter. But when Elton did that Rolling Stone interview where he's bisexual, my dad came in and goes... I will buy you five albums if you'll break every one of those. It's the only time he ever did something like that. Oh, wow. And I looked at him, I was like, why? He goes, he's bisexual. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> How old were you when that happened? 14. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I, you know, I was a young kid. That was the only time my dad kind of freaked. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he was cool as Christmas. Like when I started playing guitar and said, I want to write, they'd let me stay up as late as I wanted to, as long as I didn't bitch about getting up, going to school. I mean, I'd be up at three o'clock in the morning playing guitar. Did you start with the guitar? I did. I, and what's funny is I I liked Elton, but I, I wanted to play piano, but I actually played clarinet in the school band, so I was already kind of tweetering on my sexuality, I guess, or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I thought it was, is super, it, the clarinet is super macho. I, don't, I, don't I love I mean, listen to Super Tramp, man. I, I love clarinet, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I was... Because I, I told my parents I wanted to play the cornet, and they came home with the clarinet. So... <laughs> When it I'm, was cheaper. When I'm in the fifth clarinet. grade and I get this clarinet and I'm sitting with all the girls, I'm like, oh boy. And you know, you get ragged on, you know, with boys at that age. I was like, and there's nothing I could, they couldn't take it back. My parents had no money. They were like, you're playing the clarinet. I'm like, okay. Did you play sports in school? Yeah, I played baseball and basketball. I was 
in senior year, I was MVP in baseball and basketball in my team in Stockbridge and actually had a couple of scholarships for baseball. Is that right? Which I declined because I was straight ahead in music. And so what? where did you go from there? Went to Berkeley College of Music just for, you know, six months. In Boston. Got there and broke, yeah, in Boston. And uh, I got up there and true story, once again, I'm just a naive Southern boy and I'm walking the streets because had no money. And for some reason, I start talking to the mailman. <laughs> yeah. And he, go, he goes, what are you doing? I said, I go to Berkeley. He goes, oh, I graduated from there. I said, why are you a mailman? He goes, well, either I could teach or I could write. And I didn't want to write. And he said, you know, I get, I'm a mailman. And then he goes, what do you want to do with it? And I said, I want to be a writer, songwriter. He goes, they're not going to teach you that. He says, you need to go out and experience life. He said, go take a trip to Europe, whatever it takes. Go go experience life. They're not going to teach you. They'll teach you theory, which is great. Mm -hmm. They're not going to teach you life. You want to be a songwriter, go learn life. And I look back that Cliff Clavin from Boston, Cheers, basically gave me life lesson. I remember wow. going, I'm going home. And then that's when I went and started working in the studio. What did your folks say when you told them that you decided to, to bail on school? Oh, they were fine as long as uh, as long as I was still focused going. So when I came home... There was a studio in Stockbridge of all places, a 16-track studio called Real to Real that Bill Turpin owned, whose son is in the band. Will Stock, Stockbridge, for our listeners, is a small town outside of Atlanta. And, and back then, very small town. <laughs> very, very, small very, town. very small town. So to have a studio a quarter mile from my ha my parents' house mm -hmm. was a, the ultimate blessing. It truly was. Right. And so I would just, I came home, moved to my parents, and would walk there, and I sat there for three months making coffee, cleaning the toilets till Bill was going on vacation with his family. He said, you want to do a session? I was like, sure. So what'd you do in that first session? I caught the studio on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically or literally? No, I, no, I did. I caught it on fire. Um, cause I really didn't understand studio. I would just sit there and watch and you know, they're patching things in and mm -hmm. you know, this is a 140 pound, 18 year old kid who's just mesmerized by all the gear and stuff and just right. kind of taking it all in and when bill went on vacation he called me and he, i came in he goes here's how you patch this 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 and i mean he literally gave me a 10 minute study and i didn't know what he said like it literally just went like a flash so i created such a high-end loop that it started a, a electrical fire in the crossover between the main speakers <laughs> so there was a screen on the main speakers i can remember this to this day and this guy came in and i was doing a mix my first gig with mixing which is bizarre so i'm creating this loop to try to get it the two track 16 track two track and somehow i created a high-end loop it was so high-end that it literally caused the crossover to catch electrical catch on fire and i'll never forget i was sitting there and the, the cat with me was like man something's on fire i was like i know it smells like electrical fire <laughs> and all of a sudden you see smoke coming out of the screen where the speakers are and i'm like oh shit so I took the screens off and I was mm -hmm. like, I called Bill. I was like, man, something's going on. I don't know what to do. He came in and he was really calm. I mean, at that point, I had, he had the right to just yank me up, throw me out. Mm -hmm. But he was like, all right, here's what you did. Mm -hmm. And he gave me another 10 minute lesson. And he said, don't do it again. Don't, don't do call me on my vacation again. Because <laughs> they were out camping somewhere with the family. So. Oh, no. So that was, yeah, I, I actually caught the studio on fire. So this point in your life, you're you're figuring out what's next. Are you writing songs? Are you is that your only job? Are you worried about how you're going to make a living doing what you love? I well, you got to have. There's no there was no money in working in the studio, so mm -hmm. I had odd jobs. I mean, I did uh, landscaping. I was the uh, janitor at my dad's church. 
I did, uh, I stocked a hospital in, uh, Henry County, what, whatever I could do just to, just to keep me fed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I never had an apartment. I would just date girls. I mean, that's an old saying, but seriously, if I needed a place to get away from mom and dad, and most of the time I slept in the studio, I would just, when I was done with the session, I would sit there for the next six to eight hours and learn the equipment and write songs, learn how to the different timbers of instruments and that's where I learned to be a producer I guess in a sense where I learned kick bass go together and all this and it was just me by myself and it became multi-instrumentalist because of that because there was nobody there except me <laughs> you had to do so, it so but at the end of the night you know I would get up under a board which was on and it's warm the heat comes down so I would just get a pillow off the couch and right. sleep there and then you know every three or four days go somebody's house take a shower <laughs> I'm, I'm sure your fellow studio mates appreciated that it was the eighties. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. When when did you start feeling like you had a good enough product to share it with the world? I mean, I always thought that, but I, I didn't realize it till I think I wrote a song. The first one I ever I wrote, "Good Night, Good Guy," and I'll never forget. You know, I kind of had in and out bands that played. We go do shows. Nobody ever would pay attention to us. But when I wrote that, I remember the guys going, "It's clicked." And I remember this one guy said that he goes, "It's clicked with you now." And that's when I think uh, it was Good Night, Good Guy. And that was actually the song we took to album, my brother took to album 88 with Shine, because I thought Good Night, Good Guy would be the song. But, really? And they, you know, the old rock and roll story, they turned the, the A side over to the B side and they started playing Shine. And then like, this is the within song. three months, all hell broke loose. Right. So you're sleeping in the studio and, and all of a sudden your music's on the radio. Mm hmm. Well, that? it was on album 88. And then they, within a week, it was the most requested song and if people are album 88 back in the 80s was georgia state's 100 watt station and they were the only station that played bands like the cure depeche mode mm-hmm. rem mm-hmm. that you know fm radio really wasn't ready for yet right if that makes sense so they were very edge and so to, all of a sudden you your number one most requested this was in november and then they call us and they were like uh, we want y'all to do our christmas show at um, Variety Playhouse, and really, I didn't have a band. I mean, yeah. Shane and I jammed and stuff, our drummer, and I called Dean, and he called Will, because Will and Shane kind of had this little frat band going on. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey, can we? Can y'all learn, like, uh, six songs? Right. And then we went to Variety Playhouse, and we started playing Shine. I mean, the room erupted. We didn't know. We, we just had no idea. That's crazy. And Dean is your brother. Correct. And Will is the son of the owner of the studio. Correct. Where you were recording. Yeah. And we all grew up in the same, of course, Dean grew up where I was, but they, they were all <laughs> 10 years younger than me. I right. mean, okay. so I kind of went to, I always called it, there was a point when I was like 26, 27, where, you know, I kept trying the band thing. And I think there comes a point in life where you either go, it's fourth down, I'm going to go for it, or I'm going to punt. Right. All my generation looked at me and go, we're punting, and I'm like, I'm going for it. Like, I don't know what to say. It's the only thing I knew how to do. And so those guys were 1920 when the band formed. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you go from. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I go. Mm-hmm. I hate when my child does <laughs> mm-hmm. that. I'm like, spell mm-hmm. that for me. <laughs> it's M M M. I know. M H H. So you're you go from janitor at your dad's church and odd task guy around the studio to being. To opening for Aerosmith in a very short period of time. Yeah, we. so that was Christmas of 93. We did that show. We got signed to Atlantic in February. 
we did first thing we did was Woodstock, and then we went straight out with Daryl Smith right after that. Wow, you you were on that Woodstock revival show, the '94, the '94 one. We did '99 also. And so, <laughs> what's going through your head when you're, you know, we we didn't know what was going through our head till about seven years later. I mean, it was just full speed ahead, um, because when the original the Hints allegations our first. Uh, recording came out that was just a batch of demos i've been doing in the studio over five years there was no band it was basically me and there might you know shane played on some drums on mm-hmm. some shine is me with a drum machine right so i mean you know and, and everybody called us grunge when we came i was like hold on that's a drum machine first off <laughs> right we're from the south so right. there was no garage no <laughs> there was a basement <laughs> so yeah it was just full speed ahead and i was so nervous because we actually were going to get dropped from Atlantic after our first recording had this, there was two guys that were going to be president that were fighting to be president because the one had resigned. And we knew for a fact that the one had gotten it, he was going to drop us. So I was like, well, hold on. So that whole first six, seven months while we're out touring every day off we had, we made it, we went in the studio. So we made our second record on the road. Okay. And luckily the other guy got the job, not the one that wanted drop us which is funny enough he actually wanted to manage us later in our career um we were ready we presented our, our second the blue record mm-hmm. or recording uh in january of 95 mm-hmm. we actually presented to him on a friday they didn't know we i didn't know how the record industry worked and our manager at the time really didn't either he knew we were out recording so when i told him the week i had finished mixing they were like y'all made a record and i was like yeah because we had no A&R. You always hear mm-hmm. about A&R. Right. There's never been an A&R in our life because it's self-sustained. I produce, I write, and the bands, you know, they're great players. Right. So we finished on a Friday mastering. The following Tuesday was in the stores. Wow. And that's when I learned quarterly profits and returns. <laughs> so what, is, what lessons did you learn about the record? I mean, we could talk, you, you do three hours on the on the music business, but like when you... You're you're a kid with no business background, mm-hmm. basically. When you're 28, all of a sudden you're getting signed. You've got to learn the record business in a hurry. What'd you What'd you learn? What'd you mess up? The, the first thing I learned was the business. Like I own everything. Mm-hmm. So when you first come in, they were offering a certain amount, mm-hmm. and it's. I mean, I probably never made five thousand, six thousand dollars a year in my life, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're throwing three hundred fifty thousand. But they own it, right? And they partially own it or own it. And I just sat there and I said, no. How'd you know to say no right then? Because it was my, it was mine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't there. It was mine. I, I don't know how else to say it. And, and I came from nothing. I, I'm cool going back. I mean, it's not right. like I've been spoiled. Like, that's the whole thing. A lot of these bands had years to have pre-production and got spoiled to a lifestyle before their even first record comes out. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So they're kind of getting accustomed to that lifestyle. So they're already indentured to the record company before they, that, and before they, they, they also, create a real product. Cr- correct. And they're also creating a lifestyle that wasn't probably there before. Where mm-hmm. if you, you know, with me, I was like, I'll go back and I'm, I'm okay because I, and I had a great attorney, Joel mm-hmm. Katz, that just helped teach me who was very honest on both sides. He's like, if you don't take this, you may never have another hit. You may mm-hmm. never, they may mm-hmm. drop you. They may, you know, right. it's like, it's a flip of the coin. And I was like, I'll take that chance. I got no problem with that. 
So you've owned all your masters from the beginning. I don't own the masters. I own the re-records, and I own all my publishing, and the publishing's the most important part. Oh, good. Then I can run some of your uh, music on the podcast. You can. <laughs> you have my permission. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. So did the labels look at you like, who the hell are you to say no to our money? No. They really didn't. They looked at us, because the song was already a hit. They mm -hmm. just looked at it. It was like getting in there quick. Right. You know, in one day, we had five labels call us and offer us a deal. Wow. When I couldn't get their attention for 12 years, like thrown out of offices. <laughs> and actually, the label that signed us, the guy that signed us, had we'd sent the demos throughout the year. He, he had turned us down over twice. Right. The same song that he was... They, they were signing a song. They weren't signing a band. Let me, right. let me be very clear about mm -hmm. this. There was, and, and we weren't a, we were a new band. We weren't even, I don't think that, we, we became really good over time, but we were literally put together real quick. Right. So they were signing a song. They You're like really, the monkeys. In a sense, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's okay to say that. Like, and I always I did, I don't that mean about that. The, I, I was, I'm not going to I have said I that about the first record, that truly is not a collective soul record. That's right. Ed trying to get a publishing deal. Mm-hmm. And that I always said so it's Millie, Millie Vanilli or whatever they were called. <laughs> like, because we go out there and the guys are having to play it, but they didn't play it in the studio. That was that was the other reason it's so important for us to get in the studio to be the band. And I always said that first year of playing live was our pre-production. We were playing in front of people. I mean, I was showing the songs. At soundcheck, we go out and play it in front of people. And I didn't have lyrics. I was just mumbling. Just I, I called it vowel movement, which Keith Richards ripped me off in his book. But I called mm -hmm. it vowel movement back then, just That's to give him book. the. Uh, it's a great book. He's a great. I mean, let's let's just bow before Keith. Um, I, I would just give him the vowel movement, the rhyme where they could understand where the inflection was going to go vocally. So it was very important for me. We we kind of figured our what the band was going to be in that six months on the road. Right. That was our pre-production. Wow. In our forming as a band. So when you deliver the second record, the label starts taking you more seriously. To a degree. But once again, I didn't. the one thing I didn't understand about the labels was if you don't have a cheerleader, an A&R guy, and mm -hmm. I'll use that, mm -hmm. the most important part of an A&R guy I've learned in my, and, and, it, and it goes back and forth because I've talked to other artists, is there a cheerleader in there? If you're signed to a label, you need a cheerleader. They make noise for you inside the organization to, when, to get behind right, a record. When you don't have someone doing that for you, you just come in and it's the luck of the draw. We mm -hmm. we sustain, and, and I'm not bragging, it, we sustain because of the quality of the songs and the quality of the, the band. Right. And because any moment, nobody was pulling for us. In line. They, they just never gave us the push that we, we should have. And there's so many times and so many artists I've met and they're like, we don't understand why... Now, trust me, I'm great with the success we've had, mm -hmm. but there's, there was an article last year where this cat just, he worked at Atlantic. He was like, Atlantic had the gym. They had a band that, you know, at that time had no issues. They worked their ass off, never complained, made quality song, quality recordings, and were internally, you know, the producer was in the band and they just didn't care. We, right. were, so, we were too easy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a... That, that southern hospitality of like we just we don't we'll take care of it for us yeah. i was just telling a close friend this morning that you've got to make a little noise in your career and, and that's what i and and that's one thing you have to now on the flip side of that i've talked to a lot of friends that were in bands that a and r were in the studio just beating them down you right. know to the point where they have a different opinion about a and r trying to make their music more commercial or just yeah taking the 
whatever that artist felt that's the direction they lean it that way because i guess it makes them feel important or mm-hmm. they're creative right whereas with me or our band we just fucking did what we did right and when it felt good to us yeah and especially me i was like there's your product right like i said no no one ever came in and questioned except one time this is a great story and we were with a major mixer and uh, they knew we were mixing dosage so they called in and we were sending the mixes and they're like the it's it's just the common thing and that's why i never it's the only time i ever did it i sent them the mixes and they're like and i was in the studio with a mixer and i said they called and they said the vocal's not loud enough mm-hmm. so i was on the back in the day when you had phones so i put mute and i looked at the guy mixing and i was like do you think the vocal's too low and He's one of the all-time great mixers. I'm going to know the name. He goes, I mixed it. I said, okay, what do I do? He goes, tell him we're going to send him another one. So I said, we're going to send you another one with the 1DB vocal mix-up. Hang up. He goes, give me 10 minutes. And we sit there 10 minutes. He goes, all right, send it to him. Send him the same same one. (laughs) They call back immediately and go, I love it. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. They They just want to feel like they're involved in the process sometimes but that's not then you're not you're not involved if you if you can't tell that yeah. you're not involved clearly. you're just you're just going through the motions clearly so so you're on your way success is happening mm-hmm. presumably money is coming in <laughs> or not well it was but it was going to the wrong person we had a um falling out with our first manager because after the end of the second record tour I got engaged and I called my manager and said, I, I, I'm getting married. I'd like to buy a house. Like mm-hmm. nobody had homes. Right. And he goes, well, we have no money. And I'm like, how do we have no money? He goes, we have no money. So I called my publisher and I said, uh, Why, can I get some money? I just want to buy a small house. I'm getting married. He goes, mm-hmm. dude, I just sent you a huge check. And I said, where'd you send that check to? So there was, I can't really get into the details, but sure. from there, there became a lawsuit of which for the next 18 months, we got paid $150 a week. Meantime, you're trying to keep the band alive and record your next record. Right. I did get one check that sustained us because we all came home. Dean moved in with mom and dad. Will moved into his girlfriend's parents' basement. Dad had a friend that had a cow farm, about a 200-acre cow farm with a log cabin. Mm -hmm. So I'm newly married, and I move in there, and it had a... uh, uh, old wood stove furnace that's how you kept the whole place heated mm-hmm. so i'd have to get up in the morning with my new wife who thinks i'm a rock star mm-hmm. cutting wood put the wood burner in it's there quite romantic is, actually it's it was most miserable no it, for maybe a day but we were in we ended up being there for about a year and uh the guy didn't charge me because he knew my dad and and um and shane moved back in his parents basement so it's, kind, know, it being, kind of, it's reminiscent of like when the Stones recorded Exile in the south of France. It was. It sounds and, just and, like And that. what we did, we, we weren't supposed to be recording at the time, but I bought these ADATs. Back in the day, they're called ADATs. So I bought three of those because I had that one chunk I got real quick from publishing. And so I kind of divvied up. We got 150 bucks a week by the court. And then I had that, so I kind of I don't know, balanced it out to what we needed to record. And we recorded the Dismal Breakdown in a a, a cabin on a cow farm and it was when we were done i I gave it to the record label and they were like well it sounds like i I don't care i want people to hear the emotion and Mm -hmm. literally when i tell you we were 
it was nothing like this, but the room was no bigger than this. Drums were over there, vocal. It was just, but I, I do like, that's one of my favorite, and the band talks about that. It's our favorite because of what we had to go. We thought we would never be a band. We thought we were getting everything sucked away from us. Right. So once again, we have to prevail over something that most bands don't have to. And you're just putting it all back into, the, I mean, all the emotion, all the experience. Yeah, and I wanted no reverb. I wanted it to be what we experience as a band, what, what I was having, you know, depositions are not fun. <laughs> Especially when you did nothing except go do your job. Right. That could be, that's a good album And it cover, wasn't a good way of, well, it was called Discipline Breakdown for a reason, because mm-hmm. there were times I was just, I literally just wanted to jump off something, you know. Did you feel like you had failed, failed yourself or failed your, your bandmates who looked to you to first manage and foremost, that stuff? As, as the leader of the band, I first and foremost felt like I failed the band. Because, and the crew, because you become a family. You're responsible for a lot of families at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, being a newlywed, I felt like I felt her, and <laughs> you, you, you know, just you felt like a failure. And that's why I was so adamant of just recording and then letting that material be that raw. So, and how do you pull out of that? We settled, mm-hmm. and um, we got a. We just got our career back. Mm-hmm. All the money prior, we just got our career back. Right. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. and that's all we wanted. We so we got a second chance again, <laughs> right? So the that's how it moved forward from there. So fast forward today, and I was a big fan of yours long before I ever met you. But now that I know you, and we're both dads, <laughs> trying to trying Whew. to just be good dads, right? Like the the music business is a whole lot less glamorous when you're when you're fifty something trying to be a good parent. Like it's never been that glamorous to me in the first place because I yeah. look at it as like I. I'm so focused on, and my wife, Michaeline, gets on to me all the time. And I'm like, sweetie, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, first and foremost in my life, it's an extent, I, I write songs all the time. It's just what I do. And if I don't do that, I can't be a good husband. I can't be a good father because that's just what what my being is made of. Mm-hmm. Does that make, I don't know how to, and right. it, it may come across as selfish, but it's not. I've, I recognize that a long time mm-hmm. ago. If you take away all the guitars and I can't write, I'm I'm not me. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Well, you were doing it sleeping under the the board in the studio. You I know, but it's you weren't still doing it for a, the glamour, you know. Like, right? I'm I'm searching for that song. I don't know mm-hmm. where that song is. I'm <laughs> and I tell right. she'll, when she gets, I'm like, sweetie, I haven't written that song yet. Mm-hmm. I've written songs, but I haven't written that one. Yeah. And I'm very blessed. I've written a lot of songs where people it touches people and mm-hmm. brings emotion. I just to me, I haven't written that song yet and i don't know if i ever will but it's what drives me that's gosh that's a lot of pressure man it's not pressure i love it Mm -hmm. but that's it's not pressure that's me that's just what dna is made up in me so so where does music feel like a job the travel Mm -hmm. only the travel just the traveling and and the missing of your family Mm -hmm. and your friends i always say the two hours before we go on stage is great because we start bonding we and once again, we're a band that, believe it or not, after 25 years, love each other. We're friends. We talk to each other mm-hmm. every day, even when we're off the road. Then, of course, the however long they let us play, whether it's an hour and a half or two and a half hours, that's the most some crazy feeling you can ever have. Uh, to me, I, don't, I couldn't imagine anything any better. I try to explain it to people. You know, I, I have bad nights, but when I have bad nights, people clap for me no matter what. <laughs> when I go to Publix oh, and, I, and, I get, bless you. and I get my change back, I don't, you know, drop the mic and start clapping for it. Like, my job yeah. is yeah, 
it's it's an egotistical job to be mm-hmm. honest with you mm-hmm. and so it takes you a second after the show to calm down and you know we're, sure. and that's why we love each other because we know when they're to punch somebody in the face the band each right. other in the face or hug each other so it takes so those those six hours are awesome I mean, it's hard to describe. It'd be mm-hmm. like giving you a picture of the Grand Canyon. And go look at this, yeah. but you got to go see it. When yeah. you see it, you kind of go, "There it is." But then, after that buzz wears off, you're on the bus traveling from Little Rock to mm. to wherever, wherever in Texas yeah. the next show is. It's with a bunch w- of smelly it. dudes. Well, in today's day and age, w- once again, we love each other, and I get the back of the bus because I'm the old man, and I'm and and they can't mess with me back there so <laughs> in the modern age i sit back there and i watch espn you know and uh-huh. i'm i'm cool i read a book they're up there like i said they're all younger than me so they're up there and right. they're djing it up and dancing and playing music right well so so how does it you know your part i mean you're you're all musician but you're also a business guy you got to manage a group of people to accomplish a task mm-hmm. and a lot of bands break up over over money and over just fighting about stuff how have you managed to keep it keep that organization together over 25 years because we grew up together mm-hmm. our families grew up together we knew each other before we got into this mm-hmm. and i've always said this had i just met someone six months and we became a band you don't know that person you're mm-hmm. you're you don't know we grew up these aren't together. hired guns right we grew up together like mm-hmm. we know each other's we knew each other before we start i mean I remember Will being born. Of course, I know my brother being born. So <laughs> it, it, everybody understood each other's idiosyncrasies and all the craziness that went on. Now the money thing, you just you just be fair and you just be upfront. Yeah. And when the band started, it was my responsibility to write the songs. Mm-hmm. And I've shared it here and there. Just, you know, if somebody has an idea, I'm not going to hold back an idea that's great. Right. But the guys look at me and they go, Go write the songs, and we're ready to come play it when you're ready for us, and let's go tour. Right. Running down the highway, checking out the sky above, thinking about what is and dreaming of what was. Ed's, we're in Ed's studio. He just pulled out a notebook. That, that could be – if there's any jokes in there, I'll take the jokes, and I'll give you the song when you I write it. You need to hang on the bus. There's a lot of jokes on the bus. The way you made money as a, as a, as a musician 20 years ago is very different than the way you make money today. How, how are you dealing with the changes there? To be honest, we really didn't make any. You got an advance back in the day with a record label. Mm-hmm. You didn't really make money, and we were the first one to truly go independent. I wanted off a label, and I was sitting with the president. I flew from Savannah, Georgia. I'll never forget the story. I flew from Savannah, Georgia, to New York on a, when we had dosage out because I was confronting them about how they were not supporting the band. Like I could tell that they there was no cheerleader, and I was wondering why we felt like we'd made a, a record that deserved. You know, that's their job. That's their job now to throw it out there and let people hear it. And uh, so I went and sat with him, and this was when Metallica was going at Napster. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget, I sat down and I said, uh, we were, he's like, oh, we love you, you know, the whole spill. So it was like 01, something like that, 2001? 2000, probably. Okay. 2000. Mm-hmm. Two, yeah, 2000. And I'll never forget, he sat there and I said, what are we going to do about the digital? This was you know, the beginning of the whole digital thing. Sure. It's like, what are we going to do about the digital thing? You know, the mm-hmm. Napster and stuff. And he just, I'll never forget. He just goes, clapped his hand. He goes, that's going to go away. <laughs> I literally walked out, had my phone, <laughs> called my attorney. I said, I want off this label. I oh had my in my God. head. I'm like, okay, I can do this on my own. Now we built a brand, yeah. which we were lucky enough to have a brand. Let me make sure. And, and the label did help 
build that brand. Sure. But we had a brand. I'm like, all right, enough of this. And so we were the first one to go independent, which meant, okay, now I'm taking responsibility on, as we were talking earlier, I got to hire a team of uh, radio people, press, publicity, and this and that, and get distribution. So I went out and did it. And I talked to the guys. I'm like, hey, man, let's do it on our own. They were like, okay, let's do it. And I, I explained to them, like, how many checks have you gotten from the label lately? Mm-hmm. And they were like, none. I was like, of course you haven't. I right. said, now we can. It's our label. There's no recouping when you're. it's your own well, it, thing. Well, you can't. It, that is... I don't even know what language those those contracts are. Of course, mm-hmm. you can recoup, but they just there's language all over the place. You, you it just takes you, you got to hire another lawyer to go through all that language. Sure. I was like, all right, done. Now we're going to really be self sustained, and they were gun ho, and everybody thought we were nuts. And right when we went started doing that, that's when the labels started dissipating because of the digital music came on, right. and every and they were like, oh no. So we were fortunate enough. Fred Crochelle, who's one of my dear friends now, he was the GM at Maverick Records for Madonna, mm-hmm. got laid off. I'm like, what about you come on here over right. here and help us? Yeah. So I, I got to handpick all these cats yeah. that had been doing it for years and bring them in for like a one-off. So it seems to me, based on this conversation, that, I mean, yes, you are a musician, but you sort of dig the strategic part of this whole thing and that that well i have to because it's my art i want people to hear it if i don't Mm -hmm. want people to hear my music i'd sit in this basement for the rest of my life i i'm proud of what i write and i'm proud of this band i want people to hear it so how do i get them to hear it so i gotta figure that out right what's the best avenue and 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 i don't mind using the word exploit Mm -hmm. no i don't want to be silly and dress in costumes that's not me that's not this band right but what's the best way for this band to be what we are to exploit us to people to hear what we and, and come see us live the world's different today you're putting out you're still producing a lot of great records how are you getting the word out how does how does the consumer find new music in well today's funny market? you bring that up because now since our last recording streaming's become the main thing so that's mm-hmm. something i'm really having to dig in deep mm-hmm. and talking with management and we're trying to fi- figure that out because to be honest we, we made a double album i wanted to make i wanted to release a double album mm-hmm. that's the most stupid thing you could do in today's <laughs> world but i grew up you know with the white yeah, album man. and goodbye sure. yellow brick road and yeah all that and i just always in my life my career a bucket list is to be able to make a double up. right well we did mm-hmm. and management's like where do you think this is gonna <laughs> go was that i know <laughs> so that's honestly that's conversations i'm having till till we release it it's it's the stream i don't know right now to be honest with you i don't know that one i'm trying to study up on that because how do you get kids to go oh how, how do they know you or even your fans I, I guess you have a fan base you can do it through facebook and and all that but how do you get people outside the fan base to know you have a recording yeah it's i mean i think with streaming what... because you know back in the day you can have a big sign up in target or mm-hmm. uh walmart or things like that i mean it's just have i don't do i don't pre- have anywhere to play a cd in my house and i'm i'm an old man so i i'm a vinyl guy as you could tell i when i'm home i just listen to vinyl i don't really stream i just when i'm on the road i don't listen to anything i well i guess i do because the boys are streaming but mm-hmm. i've got to figure that one that's a new one that's a right. good one i'm a big spotify fan and i mean i see bands you know doing ha- having kind of that home page of spotify talking about their new releases and stuff and well that's that's once again this is we just finished the record so i'm i gotta i gotta get into that we got our distribution, but 
I don't even know what distribution means anymore for hard co- copies. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Other than I see comedians selling CDs after after shows, and I'm like, where do these people play this thing? I, you see what's around. I got a studio. I mean, I don't know where to put it. I don't have nowhere to put a CD. <laughs> right. Are there any other business mistakes that, uh, or, or lessons that you learned from the business side of things that you wish you could go back and do over? Well, I mean, you know, the the first management thing. I, I think mine are more emotional. I just, you know, my first manager took a chance on me that no one else did. He did what he wanted to. I mean, did what he said, and then, you know. It doesn't matter if there's a contract or not. You go through that. I, I miss the emotional part of it, if that makes sense. What do you mean? Because you become emotionally tied to him. Like, he's my fr- we're, we're a different organization. We become emotionally tied. If you come in this family, you're family. Mm-hmm. So when somebody goes away, it hurts. Right. If if that makes sense. I, I don't worry too much about, and I guess I'm blessed because I don't have to because I don't have to worry about, not necessarily the money. Of course, everybody worries about money, but... I worry about the ability to be able to keep creating. Yeah. So I think I, I go back and Mike Lean asked me this other day, do you have any regrets? And I said, one of them is I just wish I, uh, my old manager passed away this year. I wish I'd have gone and be able to just sit down with him again. Cause I, I would live at his house. We talk and we became pals. Mm-hmm. He's like a second, third father to me. Right. So that to me, business is business. You know, I, if you're a young artist out there, the first thing I do is get a lawyer. That, that's the most important <laughs> you laugh but that's the most important part that's great i mean you you just that's the most important part of business right you don't start a business without an attorney all you poets out there yeah listen up before yeah. you publish your first yeah. volume and then business is going to do what business does after yeah. that but as yeah. long as you keep being able to create right you know it's it's you know there's marriages that go bad yeah you know? yeah when you first started making some money did you go out and buy stuff you you regret buying did you buy cool cars or shiny you no have, you no, have some I, pretty cool clothes Ed. I'll, I'll, no no i i don't i never i was very careful about that because like i said i grew up and i didn't know how much at one point i didn't know how much money i had i mm-hmm. you know we could have bought a bigger house and traveled i just didn't know i didn't care i was so wrapped up in the music mm-hmm. now the one extreme or I have gotten into collecting guitars, which, as you can look around. I took a couple pictures. Those will be available on the website. And uh, I have a total of about 250 now. (laughs) All right. That's a few. That's a few. Yeah. But a couple of things about that. They are work-related, and they feel they give me something back, and also they're a tax write-off, which we don't have much of those anymore. Do you think they've retained their value? I have no idea. I'm just curious. The ones I I have a great guitar liaison, I call him. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he doesn't... I can give you stories about every one of those guitars. Mm-hmm. There's some that are just, I buy because I, I like the sound, which mm-hmm. is great because it gives me a song. Right. Yes, they will retain their value. Is there anything that today that you want that you don't have materially or, or, or from a flexibility standpoint? I just don't want to drive, so I wish those cars would come out quicker than than later. I, I just, Autonomous driving cars. I, yeah, I just want to get in a car and go. I don't yeah. want to drive. I right. just, I'm done driving. <laughs> You'd like? Would you rather take a helicopter to all your gigs than than uh, have to go down to the airport and? Are you fly kidding me? The damn place. I would love. A hel- I love helicopters. So, okay, so helicopter. All right. See, I'm trying to create needs that you really don't need. You. Yeah, I don't need don't. that. But would would I appreciate it and enjoy it? Yes. So because I just I like helicopters because you get the full view, man. And it just 
that feels unnatural for, I guess because you know you fly so much planes yeah that's the only time I sleep to be honest with you I love playing I'm out a helicopter I'm like excited this is like doesn't make sense to me from a physics standpoint what's a typical day like for you it depends on what I'm doing if I'm home I get up with the family and then as soon as the kids off to school I go back to sleep I get my peaceful <laughs> I get my eight to twelve zone of just pure sleep and then wake up work and, and work means like, what oh all right i i mean literally i I just read and write all the time that's mm-hmm. all i love reading so mm-hmm. and i felt cheated as a child when i my education because i i graduated high school and never read a book except the bible i mean i didn't have to read a book and right and now i look back and i felt like i was cheated because to me reading is the best value there is it mm-hmm. stays with you you're learning and don't get me wrong. I love music. I want people to hear my songs, but value is, is books, man. And, uh, so I love reading. And once again, it's just expressing with a guitar mm-hmm. and I, I love family time. I mean, it sounds boring, but I, I love my family and I love my favorite time is trips with my family. Right. Cause, Cause as you see the studios in the home, and I'm eventually going to get this out of here so I can be more of a family guy when I'm home. <laughs> because there's you cross a line between between creating. It was which a, it is was a job. great idea at first, mm-hmm. and and when the guys were here, it it's it's hard when you're down here and all of a sudden you know your boys up there. Right. It kind of you can't you're 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 cheating both parties. Right. I'm cheating my work and I'm cheating him, if that makes sense. So I've learned that lesson in the last couple of years. So I'm moving the studio to somewhere else and. I just, I like, when I'm home, I like being home. Uh, yeah, I get that. My my uh, home office is often invaded by my son, and, and I feel bad about both sides of it. That, that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's unfair to both parties. This is my, my producer. Hey, Mike, you're you're in the studio with Ed Rowland of Collective Soul. Hey, Mike. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a mic in my mouth, if that makes you feel Mike, better. Where <laughs> It's not in his mouth. No, it's near his <laughs> mouth. Did you guys uh, talk about the, like, any kind of uh, crazy, like, uh, crazy expenditures while he was touring in the beginning and stuff like that? We kind of covered that. He, he's, we're boring. We were boring, Mike. He's, he's very disciplined. They didn't buy anything. Because they, they, they would have bought more. I'll tell you what I bought was my first wife. <laughs> oh, not bad. <laughs> no. No, real bad. <laughs> Ed has excellent hair, though. So I, that's what happens when you just have good hair. <laughs> Did you just say we never even had anybody to tell us what to wear? Yeah, that's what he said. No, we never have. We do what we do. From an outsider perspective, that sounds, so, that sounds absolutely insane and hilarious. Um, hey, Mike. still got girlfriends yeah nice to meet you too mike it's been good i'll call you later i'll call you later cool man bye that's so funny to me that bands did that shit and i've done shows with other bands where they're in there and they got makeup and we look at each other and the only time we've ever said anything about each like 
the guys will go, dude, take that shit off and go put another <laughs> pair of jeans on. <laughs> well, do you think that's one of the reasons that, I mean, you guys didn't live excessively? Is that one of the reasons you're still around? It seems like the most... Once again, I go back to that we grew up with each other, and I think people see that on stage. They We love what we do, and I think it starts on stage. I really yeah. do. I think when people see us play, they go... Those guys are having a good time, so fuck, I might as well too. Right? Yeah. No, that's a that's a, that, that is a that is a good thing. Okay, so I, I, we were asking before what's your day like or what inspires you to write, and you last year you recorded for your tenth anniversary you recorded an entire album dedicated to your wife. Yeah, for our tenth anniversary. <clears throat> so that's the kind of guy you got here, which I want to say you make the rest of us guys look really bad when you do that. I didn't mean. I, I thought it was a cool. Hey, hey, you're on your own, bro. I know, I know you. I know you're doing it for the right reasons, but I just want to tell you. I think, but I gave it to her, and she's done nothing with it. I want people to hear it. I'm finally like, can I have it back? I don't even. I'm a gift giver, take it back kind of guy. Now I'm like, I want it back. State my wife Stacy says, you know, Ed wrote like. 10 songs for my Colleen. I'm like, yeah, but I've written like 20 jokes about, about you. <laughs> that's a good, she doesn't, like... she doesn't seem to think that that's as romantic. I don't know why. I, don't, I wonder why Paul. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to record that intro again. Okay. What, what, what did you, uh, like, like when you're, when you're, if you were to describe blood and soul, like what accolades would. It's, seriously, I don't even. All right. Well, I I, I know I know. You see any gold or al platinum no, albums I hanging don't. anywhere? No, I don't. I they don't. go to my mom. I don't even give a shit. I just don't. <laughs> your That's mom not a, your mom's I, got a pimped out living room. Like all your her upstairs is ridiculous. Like because <laughs> Dean does the same thing. So she's got two guys in the band. So right, it's like right. And bless her heart, she wants to. I'm like, mom, just throw it away or store it or give right. it to charity. Like right. that's not why we do. It's not a number is not why we do it. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Paul Ollinger. I am sitting in the home studio of Mr. Ed Rowland, who is the a songwriter and the lead vocalist for multi-platinum recording artist Collective Soul. Ed, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thanks for letting me be in your home today. Anytime, bro. You know that. All right. That's good. Where can people see you? Are you, are you on the road? Are you, I just on. finished. I just finished. We did our benefit shows, our last one last night, and- Weird. Oh, you know what? The next time you'll see us, we're doing that cruise with Bon Jovi. Oh, and no I don't, way. Where's that? I, I, you're, I don't know, man. It's, in, it's in April. It? It's the first time we've had this much time off. So hopefully my wife really likes me because she hasn't spent this much time with me because my brother Dean uh, is having his baby. Oh, congratulations, and his girl. So, Dean. yeah. So, and I think he's the only one young enough and wife's young enough to do that. So that's the only way we can get <laughs> off. So. <laughs> Hopefully next year they have another one so I can get some more time off. So what's the name of, do you know what the name of the cruise is? Oh, in April? God, you, oh, Runaway. Runaway uh, Cruise. Uh, Runaway Cruise. All right, so you're going to, you're, you're we're going to go hang with Bon Jovi on, on the water. On a boat. That sounds awesome. It does. So it's, you do shows on the boat or you go to venues on islands? Do it on the boat. That's far out. Yeah, we, we've done a couple of those before. They're, it's different for us just because kind of, for lack of a better term, trapped. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to, you know, you still need your downtime. So it's, yeah. if I go get some food, it's, yeah. it's still work. You got a lot of people talking to you. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and, and, and you appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm not John who's going to helicopter in and out. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> pay, pay, pay like 50 bucks an hour yeah. for, for Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, I think this is going to be good. Because John's doing something kind of cool. He's actually having a seminar about songwriting and things like that, which I... You know me. I, I love. I'm all about songwriting. So yep. 
uh, and John's been good to us in the years. He's this is cool. It's awesome. Ed, it's been a real treat to talk to you. Thanks for thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Paul, man. Good to see you as always, bro. All right, take it easy. So that was my interview with Ed Roland from his basement in Sandy Springs, Georgia, which is a lovely part of the city here. You can find more about Collective Soul on collectivesoulsoul.com. I don't know where Collective S-O-L-E gets you, but uh, go to the band's website. Also, you can catch them on the Runaway to Paradise cruise next month, April down there in Miami and the Bahamas with Bon Jovi and other great artists. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, please go to iTunes or the podcast app or Spotify or Stitcher and throw us a bunch of stars, subscribe so that the people at Apple, so that Tim Cook goes, oh my gosh, look at all the people subscribing to this podcast. We need to make sure that uh, everybody else knows about it. Uh, you can find out more about me at paulollinger.com. It's O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R.com or email me at paulollinger at gmail.com. Do that. I want to leave you with the song from Collective Soul's upcoming release. The name of the song is Them Blues and the album is rumored to be coming out in June. Thank you again for listening. Enjoy this song. Share it with a friend. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs>